Smart power is a concept that was developed by political scientist Joseph Samuel Nye Jr. in the late 1980s. Nye is probably best known for his co-developed international relations theory of neoliberalism, which posits that states should focus primarily on absolute gains rather than gains relative to other states, and the related concepts of asymmetrical and complex interdependence, which say, in essence, that in the modern world, every nation's fortune is tied to that of every other nation, inextricably and to varying degrees. But smart power is the intentional blending of soft and hard power, a longish quote from a piece that Nye wrote for the Huffington Post in 2007 sums the concept up nicely. Quote, Smart power is the ability to combine hard and soft power into a successful strategy. By and large, the United States managed such a combination during the Cold War. But more recently, U.S. foreign policy has tended to over-rely on hard power because it is the most direct and visible source of American strength. The Pentagon is the best trained and the best resourced arm of the government, but there are limits to what hard power can achieve on its own. Promoting democracy, human rights, and development of civil society are not best handled with the barrel of a gun. It is true that the American military has an impressive operational capacity, but the practice of turning to the Pentagon because it can get things done leads to an image of over-militarized foreign policy. Diplomacy and foreign assistance are often underfunded and neglected, in part because of the difficulty of demonstrating their short-term impact on critical challenges. In addition, wielding soft power is difficult because many of America's soft power resources lie outside of government, in the private sector and civil society, in its bilateral alliances, multilateral institutions, and transnational contacts. Moreover, American foreign policy institutions and personnel are fractured and compartmentalized, and there is not an adequate interagency process for developing and funding a smart power strategy. End quote. Hard power, then, is the application of military force. It's bombs and guns and missiles, it's boots on the ground and drones in the sky, it's death and destruction applied with a purpose. Soft power, in contrast, is the use of non-military, non-combat, non-death and destruction methods to achieve the same or similar ends. It's diplomacy, negotiation, the passing of laws and regulations, even threats sometimes. It's spying. It's bluffing. It's every conceivable means of getting your way without resorting to harming and killing. The theory here is that the United States is mighty militarily, but we're also in a wonderful position, perhaps even a unique position, to leverage other strengths, soft power-related strengths, but we seldom do so or at least not before giving priority attention and funding to the hard power resources that we have on hand. And because of how the world works today, due to the increasing number of novel technologies and international challenges, 
and the interconnections between every nation on the planet, we might want to flip that around. But as mentioned in that quote, this is a hard sell, partially because soft power wins can feel like losses sometimes, or sometimes just a return to the status quo, as if nothing happened as a result of leveraging them. They can take time to pull off, and in some cases they work best if we do not publicly declare victory at all, so that it seems like everyone wins. The nature of our politics is that politicians want victories that they can claim. They want real I won and you lost scenarios that are indisputable, and soft power seldom grants that kind of concrete, highly visible victory, at least not in the short term. Hence, the situation in which we find ourselves. Smart power at our fingertips, but the soft power half of the equation very often left in the dust. Now, all that said, soft power is still utilized, and fairly regularly. We just don't always notice it when it happens. And what I want to talk about today is a type of soft power that is leveraged with a fair amount of frequency, but which is also often misunderstood and very seldom appreciated. Today, I want to talk about sanctions. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. So the article that I want to start from today is an AP-sourced story that was published on ABC News. And the story is entitled, Iran Strikes Back at U.S. with More Reciprocal Sanctions. And this article is super short. It's more of a quick report of something that happened than anything deep and explanatory. But I realized when I saw it come across the AP's headline stream that I didn't know much about what it was actually talking about. I understood the broad strokes of the situation into which this piece of news fit, but I didn't understand the details. And I realized that when we hear the word sanctions bandied about in the news all the time, we very seldom receive context about that word and about what it means in detail and how it fits into the larger picture of international politics and economics. Now, in this specific case, the article is about Iran sanctioning nine U.S.-linked individuals, corporations, and organizations. These sanctions are reciprocal in that they're kind of a sanctions counterattack against the United States' interests after the Trump administration slapped some new sanctions on Iranian-linked individuals and organizations. The declared rationale there was that the Iranians were continuing with their ballistic missile program, which is against the terms of an agreement that they signed that they would cease all efforts toward a functioning nuclear weapons program. This recent volley of accusations and sanctions being leveled between the U.S. and Iran has been occurring from the beginning of the Trump administration so the end of 2016 forward, and a couple recent pieces from Reuters on the matter kind of help explain what that relationship has looked like. There was a piece from February of 2017 entitled, Trump Administration Tightens Iran Sanctions, Tehran Hits Back. And then another from the next month, from March of 2017, entitled, Iran Sanctions 15 U.S. Firms 
citing human rights abuses and Israel ties. And a quote from that piece, it was not immediately clear if any of the companies, which included defense technology firm Raytheon, had any dealings with Iran or whether they would be affected in any way by Tehran's action, which Iran said would include seizure of their assets and a ban on contacts with them. End quote. Companies sanctioned by Iran this time around include Remax Real Estate, Oshkosh Corporation, M7 Aerospace, Lewis Machine and Tool Company. There are a lot of companies here that work internationally and that conceivably could be affected by sanctions by Iran. But as mentioned in that Reuters article, it's unknown if, and actually probably fairly unlikely that, Iran's sanctions would have much or any impact on these international companies' bottom line. Now, for their part, Iran has claimed that these ballistic missiles that they are developing do not imply progress toward nuclear weapons, and that their motivations are the same as any country. They simply wish to protect themselves, and in a completely legal way, with non-nuclear missile technologies. They have called Trump's new sanctions illegal, and have leveled their counter-sanctions, using language that implies that the individuals and companies that they are sanctioning are supporters of terrorism, and in some cases identifying the terrorism in question as the actions of Israeli forces against the Palestinians. Now, a little additional context to that. On May 20th, Iranian President Masan Rouhani won his re-election in a landslide, taking 57% of the votes, while his opponent, who is a hardcore fundamentalist conservative named Ibrahim Raisi, took only 38.5%. This is considered to be a victory for human rights in the region, as Rouhani has sought to increase the personal freedoms of individuals in the region, while also opening up their markets to the international economy and to global investors, which, it should be noted, is something that tends to have a moderating effect on radicalism in regions where it happens. The fundamentalist Ricey wanted to pull inward in contrast to that and to block out the rest of the world, and for that very same reason, because in such circumstances, radicalism tends to flourish, and that's kind of his jam. Iran's current ambitions to build a non-nuclear ballistic missile weapons program and to develop peaceful nuclear power are only possible, for good or for bad, depending on whether or not their peaceful technologies are actually peaceful and their non-nuclear weapons technologies are actually non-nuclear, because of an international effort spearheaded by former President Barack Obama in 2015 called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action Agreement was signed in Vienna on July 14, 2015, and it was a follow-up to the Joint Plan of Action, which was not quite as comprehensive, which itself was signed in November of 2013, which outlined a possible way forward regarding Iran's burgeoning nuclear weapons program. Basically, according to the tenets of this agreement, Iran would step back from their development of nuclear weapons, and the so-called P5 plus 1, which European countries tend to call the E3 plus 3, which is a group made up of the UN Security Council's five permanent members, China, France, Russia, the UK, and the US, 
plus Germany, they would negotiate with the Iranians about maybe helping them by removing some of the sanctions that they have suffered under since the UN began adopting resolutions against the country in 2006. Now, from 2006 through 2010, six UN resolutions were passed, each one leveling a greater number of sanctions against Iran and its interests. Despite these resolutions, though, Iran refused to cease their nuclear weapons program, something that they'd been working on since the 70s, but which slowed down and stumbled in the wake of the Iranian Revolution of 1979, when fundamentalist hardliners took over and ousted the U.S.-supported Shah, who ruled the country, and replaced their progressive dictator-led government with an Islamic Republic. A huge percentage of the country's nuclear-related scientific community fled the country when the revolution occurred, which stifled development in that area and in many other non-religious areas, which consequently slowed the progress that they had been making up until that point toward nuclear weapons. After the revolution, Iran fought a war against Iraq, so from 1980 until 1988, their infrastructure and economy and attention was largely tied up in that conflict. But afterward, Iran received assistance from Pakistan, China, and Russia to develop local uranium mining and enriching capabilities. And although the Iranian government has claimed these efforts to be purely peaceful, aimed at producing nuclear power for their country, the Nonpartisan Nuclear Threat Initiative Organization says that the U.S. and other intelligence agencies have long suspected that these so-called peaceful nuclear power efforts are, in reality, cover for clandestine weapons development programs. An interesting side note here is that the U.S. and Israeli intelligence organizations are so convinced that this is the case that they apparently built a computer worm, a malicious piece of software like a virus, with the express purpose of crippling Iran's nuclear program. Stuxnet is the name of that worm, and it reportedly worked splendidly, ruining up to 20% of Iran's nuclear centrifuges by introducing flaws and disruption into their computer networks. There's a great documentary about Stuxnet called Zero Days, which I'm pretty sure is available on Amazon Video and probably iTunes if you want to learn more about the purpose and discovery of this virus. It is, in fact, a pretty crazy story. But back to 2015, when the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action Agreement was signed, there was a piece in The Atlantic about it in July of 2015, entitled, Why the Iran Deal Makes Obama's Critics So Angry. This piece outlines the three options that were on the table for the world, and in some ways more specifically for the U.S., which often plays an outsized role in these types of decisions. The first option was to simply step back and allow Iran to do what they'll do, nixing the existing sanctions. This would be kind of the isolationist policy, but also one that would pull out all the stops on any current or future nuclear programs that Iran might want to undertake. The second option was to go to war with Iran, bombing their facilities to rubble and hopefully knocking out their capacity to develop nuclear weapons technologies in the near future in doing so. 
And the third option was the one that they ultimately decided to take, and it involved increasing sanctions against Iran in the hopes that they would make further concessions related to their nuclear program, beyond the limits on quantities of fissile materials produced and the number of facilities doing ostensibly peaceful nuclear research, which were limits that were already in place. This third option, as detailed in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action Agreement, also included increased oversight of these facilities and their peaceful nuclear program as a whole. And as a trade-off, the U.S. and the European Union would ease up a bit on sanctions that were previously put into place, which had crippled Iran's ability to export oil to most of the world's major markets. This article goes on to provide insight as to why Obama's support for renewed, proactive discussions with Iran were so badly received by the United States public, but also by parts of the international community. Part of the issue in this and in just about everything is simple partisan politics. Anything the other side's candidate or representative does will be shown in the worst possible light by their opponents. That's what our polarized political system has come to, and so that's always a component with this type of discussion. But this third approach was also seen by many people on both sides of the political spectrum as a public display of weakness by the United States. It was seen as an example of an administration admitting defeat against a weaker enemy because we wanted, presumably, to completely eliminate the threat of a nuclear-armed Iran forever. And this deal, by the most generous estimates, would only prevent Iran acquiring such weaponry for a few decades, tops. And beyond this specific instance, the use of sanctions within what seemed to be a military matter was viewed by some as a weak-willed approach to international diplomacy especially when two of our traditional allies in the region, Israel and Saudi Arabia, were considered to be directly threatened by Iran's government, and also secondarily by Iran's alleged funding of terrorist organizations operating in the region, like Hezbollah. It will still be some time before we see the strategic wisdom or the lack thereof of the choices made by the Obama administration in this regard. There do seem to be indicators that Iran is becoming more interested in playing well with the international community, as indicated by the recent election of President Rouhani. But it's worth remembering that the president of Iran is not the most powerful politician in the country. The supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is where the buck stops in Iran. He's a high-level Islamic cleric who was chosen to rule all in the country. And though the president is still an important position in terms of governing, and psychologically to a certain degree, the supreme leader of Iran can remove a president from power. The Islamic revolution that happened back in 1979 that led to the removal of the internationalist government and the Shah was started by Khomeini. And although it's true that the Shah was essentially a dictator who was put into power by the CIA, he was also fairly progressive when it came to human rights and internationality. A mixed bag, but one that came with some benefits. And the dude who's in charge today was the same dude who brought the Shah down and cast a cloud of hardcore fundamentalism over the country. 
resulting in the version of Iran that we know today. Now, stepping away from Iran for a moment, I think it's important to ask kind of a foundational question here. Namely, do sanctions work? Does soft power of this kind actually do what those who wield it hope it will do? Are sanctions serviceable substitutes for military action? And what shape do sanctions take? We know they can be applied to nations and corporations and individuals, but what does it mean to be sanctioned? Well, that depends on what type of sanction we're talking about. Diplomatic sanctions usually involve measures meant to express disapproval or displeasure via canceling high-level diplomatic visits or meetings, closing embassies or withdrawing staff, and other things of that nature. The benefit of this approach is that it allows a government to show another government or entity that they are pissed without causing any long-term harm. It's the governmental equivalent of slamming the phone down hard to end a conversation, but with both sides knowing that another call can be made without too much trouble, and that an apology is probably warranted and would go a long way to restoring things to normal. Economic sanctions are usually more practical than diplomatic sanctions. This type of sanction can involve new tariffs on goods from a given country, or a complete ban on a particular type of trade good or all trade goods that another country might want to send to your nation's shores or receive from you. In some extreme cases, this can involve an actual naval blockade with military personnel on hand to sink any ships or other trade vessels that might try to cross their line. In most cases, though, economic sanctions take the shape of new rules that are imposed during the import process. So if a forbidden good, like, say, a Cuban cigar, arrives at an import point, it will be disposed of or shipped back to the sender. This type of sanction is probably the most significant low-level sanction in that it can be dialed up or down depending on whether you're trying to slap an opposing nation on the wrist or starve them to death economically. I'll get more into the specifics of how well this type of sanction can work in just a few minutes, but I will say for the moment that some very significant moments in history have been the consequence of very targeted and well-applied economic sanctions. And then there are military sanctions, and the term military sanction can be somewhat misleading, as it can mean the blocking of import of certain types of weapons and goods that can be used to make weapons, but it can also mean using targeted military strikes to blow up militarily significant resources, bases, or facilities. If the U.S. or Israel, or both, were to target Iran's nuclear capabilities, such an act could be considered a military sanction against Iran having those kinds of capabilities, which would then fall under the auspices of different laws and procedures, even though to most people it would look like an act of war. Military sanctions are useful in hindering the acquisition of, for instance, fissile materials, or even expertise in the development of advanced weaponry. But as we've seen with Iran, it's generally not a long-term solution. It can slow the acquisition or development of advanced weaponry, but there's no evidence that such sanctions do more than make that process of development more difficult for those who really want to arm themselves. And then there's the oddball of the group, the sports sanction 
And there's only been one historical instance of a sports sanction being applied that I could find. And it was the consequence of the government of Yugoslavia failing to implement the terms of a UN resolution that demanded an end to the fighting and killing in Bosnia and Herzegovina so that negotiations could take place under the terms of a ceasefire. The government's failure to adhere to these peace-brokering terms led to UN Security Council Resolution 757, which, among other sanctions, banned the import of all products from Yugoslavia, prevented the sale of all products to Yugoslavia, denied aircraft permission to take off from Landon or overfly Yugoslavia, suspended all scientific, technical, and cultural exchanges with Yugoslavia, and limited the participation in sporting events in Yugoslavia. This last piece of that resolution, the sporting sanction, though seemingly the least important part of the resolution, was actually a key piece of psychological punishment against the country. The Yugoslavian football team had recently qualified for Group 4 in the Euro 1992 Finals Tournament, meaning they were in the Final Four in what is basically the European-focused World Cup. A big honor and accomplishment. But because of this UN resolution, they were kicked out, and Denmark took their place in the Final Four. Now, it is difficult to quantify how effective something like a sports sanction or a similar psychological tactic might be against a government. This is something that assaults their cultural prominence and potentially their people's self-perception rather than causing any direct monetary or infrastructural harm. So the metrics that one might use to measure the impact is unclear. But I can see how something like this could prove effective, especially as part of a larger effort meant to destabilize a country by isolating them from the larger world and pitting the common person against their government. Sports might seem trivial when compared to, for example, trade negotiations or military efforts, but they are psychologically vital for people who are trying to stay sane while dealing with the impacts of other sanctions and who want to feel good about their school or their city or their country or their culture. It is also possible for corporations to be sanctioned by governments, and depending on the severity of the sanctions, this can mean that they are no longer allowed to do business within that sanctioning country, or they cannot be lent money from banks within the sanctioning country, or they cannot hold property or equity or bonds in the sanctioning nation, and a whole slew of other consequences, including having these limitations expanded to the sanctioning country's allies. So you could potentially be blocked by a whole swath of nations, not just one. And depending on who's doing the sanctioning, this could keep a corporation from operating within a decent-sized chunk of the planet. And the same is true when individuals are sanctioned. Generally, the people who are targeted by this sort of thing are wealthy and influential, and the intention behind sanctioning them is to instigate change or to put pressure on this wealthy, influential person's government. So if you were to impose sanctions on a powerful general or politician, keeping them from living in a given country, or storing their money or owning property there, you're also applying pressure to the government that they run. If you are imposing sanctions on a wealthy autocrat, even if that sanction takes the form of disallowing the import of certain foods and wines and other luxuries that they enjoy, you are still putting pressure on the country in which they live and where they have clout because they will quite likely do something to try to change this state of affairs. 
regardless of the mechanism and who they are applied to, be it government, organization, or individual, sanctions are generally divided into three main categories. There are those that are meant to force cooperation with international law. There are those that are meant to contain a threat. And there are those that are meant to simply label a group or a country or an individual as bad guys. And this last one doesn't necessarily imply any real action beside labeling this person or group or country, but it could. This rationale for sanctioning could actually be immensely purposeful and could lead to a war or other military action by members of the UN or other organizations. But it could also lead to nothing at all other than a group or nation being labeled as bad actors by the UN, which could have other soft power-related consequences down the line, but which at first is more of a warning. It's a shot across the bow than anything else. And sanctions, in general, wherever they fall on the spectrum, from slap on the wrist to serious concrete consequences, are examples of soft power. But soft power isn't always soft, at least not in the sense that it's easy to shrug off, like being hit with a pillow instead of a two-by-four. Sometimes the impact of soft power consequences can be substantial and debilitating. In Iran, for instance, the sanctions that they were in discussions to have lifted back in 2015 were sanctions that prevented the country from selling their oil to most major markets and imposed other sanctions on any nation that bypassed that first sanction to buy oil from Iran. Some of these sanctions also prevented them from exchanging and sending money internationally. And this dual-pronged attack devastated the government's coffers. 80% of Iran's public revenue was derived from oil exports. And the loss of most of this revenue in 2007 led to a nearly 50% decrease in their total exports and a dramatic loss of value of their currency, the real. This messed with their markets and the value of their companies, but on the street level, it also raised prices of fundamentals like bread and milk and meat by about 20%, and some other goods like chicken increased in price by 80%. Soft power, then, can have very serious real-world concrete consequences when applied correctly. Similar, but arguably even more substantial consequences resulted from the recent sanctions by much of the Western world against Russia after the Russians brazenly quote-unquote annexed Crimea, a part of Ukraine that had a lot of Russians in it and which Putin decided should be his. Now that's a quick and dirty assessment of the situation and the somewhat expanded version of the story of the taking of Crimea explains a few things about Russia's internal and external policy and PR strategy. So a part of Ukraine was invaded and occupied by the Russians, but the invasion was conducted in a non-standard way, using the so-called Little Green Man strategy that was named for this event, and during which unmarked flagless supposed volunteer military personnel from Russia which were armed and supported by other unmarked, flagless Russian supply lines, crossed the border into Ukraine, and then occupied their territory, and then claimed publicly that they were not invading, they were helping the locals there, who were primarily of Russian descent, free themselves from the shackles of Ukrainian oppression. But 
they were not connected to the Russian government, so they were just doing it on their own. This was not a diplomatic move. Much like their recent adventures in botnets and news obscuring and tactical hacking, the Russians were very clever about this in that they did something that was relatively small and low in cost relative to the rewards and different enough not to provoke a military pushback, but still big enough that they could internally declare a massive imperial-style victory to their people. And strategically, it should be noted that they also captured a port in Crimea that they had been using to access the Black Sea. Up until this point, they had paid the Ukrainian government to access it. But with NATO closing ranks along the Russian border, there's a decent chance that they were worried about what might happen to their naval assets in the region if the Ukrainians decided to retract that lease. So it was a very clever move. It was very dastardly. Who knows if it would actually work again. But as in so many cases right now, the Russians are teaching a master course to the world on asymmetrical warfare. But back to the sanctions. The Russians came up with a clever way to invade and claim land from a neighbor. The world at large decided it wasn't enough to provoke a direct military consequence, and especially not enough to provoke one that could potentially spiral into a nuclear war. So their options were somewhat limited, and sanctions were applied. But not all at once. They came in three main waves. The first wave of sanctions came in March of 2014, and basically these applied to, as of yet, unnamed and unspecified people and entities within Russia, and an executive order was signed by then-President Obama to get the gears in motion. Later that month, the United States, the European Union, and Canada figured out their targets and jointly applied sanctions that would make it very difficult for a range of Russian leaders, both governmental and corporate, to travel in the Western world, while also limiting their ability to move money and hide wealth. This first step alone included the most wide-ranging sanctions against Russia and Russian interests since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. But two more waves were on the way in the following months and years, and by the end of 2016, the majority of the free world had passed numerous economic, travel-related, and diplomatic sanctions against Russia, making it incredibly difficult for those involved, and those tied to those involved with the annexation of Crimea, to travel, invest, attract investments, get loans, store and move money, acquire luxuries, and so on. The complete impact of these sanctions, like most sanctions, are difficult to quantify, at least for the moment. But even Russian representatives have admitted that the sanctions have directly capped at least tens of billions of dollars from coming into the country, and that the sanctions have amplified the downward spiral Russia was already experiencing due to the global decrease in oil prices, which is bad for a country that is so immensely dependent on fossil fuels for their existence. U.S. politician John McCain once said that, quote, Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country, end quote which is kind of true. Gazprom, Russia's largest oil company and actually its biggest company overall, was created when the Soviet Ministry of Gas Industry was converted into a corporation in 1989 at the dusk of the Soviet Union. Gazprom is a private company, but the majority stakeholder is the Russian government, and it's often used as a tool of soft power in negotiations and diplomatic efforts. This is important to know because Gazprom was a major target of these sanctions. 
So when, in 2015, Gazprom's profits plummeted by 70% as a result of sanctions and a weak ruble that was partially caused by sanctions, you can be certain that the Russian government felt it. That same year, Gazprom accounted for 8% of Russia's total income. And petroleum and gas exports as a whole made up around half of their total exports. So it wasn't a death blow, but the ruble lost half its value that year, and the Russian economy shrunk by 3.7%. Seen through this lens, a lot of the suspected motives behind Russian meddling in the US and European elections begins to make a lot more sense. As the international trade deals that they rely on, and the sanctions that they would like to see removed, are controlled by the offices in these other countries that they hope to fill with Russian-friendly politicians. Now, I should definitely note that the extent of that meddling is still fairly obscure, but what we do know, the things that they are doing that are transparent and factually demonstrable, are already enough to indicate that this is at least one of their intended ends. And we can say that pretty confidently without wading into conspiracy theory territory. One more example of modern sanction utilization that I'd like to touch on is seen in the Caribbean, in Cuba. In 1958, the U.S. blocked sales of weapons to Cuba, followed by a block on all exports to the country, excluding food and medicine, in 1960. In 1962, after Cuba nationalized some American-owned oil refineries in the country, meaning the government took them from their owners and made them property of the state without paying those former owners, this embargo was then extended to include essentially all exports from the U.S. and all imports coming from Cuba to the U.S. Things escalated from there. The Organization of American States, or OAS, which is a continental organization made up of the 35 independent countries in North and South America, decided unanimously to suspend all trade in military goods with Cuba and to block all imports coming from Cuba as the U.S. had already done. Then, in October 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis went down, and for about a month, the OAS again unanimously supported a naval quarantine of Cuba, which allowed member states to take military action against Cuba to ensure hemispheric security, in this case meaning to avoid having the Soviets base nuclear weapons on the island. That naval quarantine ended less than a month later when the Cuban Missile Crisis ended, but the sanctions only increased in severity from that point forward. It's probably a good idea to note that the term embargo, which is most commonly used to refer to Cuba's situation, and the term economic sanction are often used interchangeably. But in fact, economic sanctions are typically more targeted and surgical, applying to certain entities and certain things, while embargoes tend to be full-scale blocks of all trade with a particular country. A quarantine or a blockade goes further than that and involves some kind of physical or threat-related barrier to entry, preventing all trade and even physical interaction and immigration with anyone. So for being pedantic... It wasn't until after the Cuban Missile Crisis that the economic sanctions against Cuba became an embargo, and there was a blockade, a quarantine of Cuba, for about a month in between. From 1963 onward, the embargo continued, and other sanctions increased, including a freezing of all Cuban assets in the United States, 
and getting NATO on board with the no weapons for Cuba policy, though the NATO nations continued other sorts of trade with the Cuban government. After Cuba helped support Marxist rebels in Africa and Central and South America, U.S. President Ronald Reagan tightened the economic embargo, banning even business and tourist travel to the island from the United States. So that was in 1982. And after that came decades of loopholes being found and loopholes being filled and the U.S. figuring out ways to make life more difficult for Cuba. One example of those efforts to make life more difficult stands out to me, and it was called the Cuban Democracy Act of 1992. And it banned foreign subsidiaries of U.S. companies from dealing with Cuba and prevented ships that had docked in Cuban harbors from entering U.S. ports for 180 days, and it terminated all aid to any country that provided assistance to Cuba. Along with those changes meant to disincentivize anyone who wanted to deal with the U.S. from also dealing with Cuba, the U.S. also reduced telecommunications sanctions on the island, hoping that a decrease in trade and an increase in the Cuban citizenry's connection with the outside world would lead to democratic governmental reform in the country. A great deal more happened throughout the rest of the 90s and into the early 2000s, especially related to immigration from Cuba to the U.S., the slow upgrade of infrastructure in Cuba, and the continued dictatorial rule of the Castro regime, first by Fidel and then his brother Raul. But despite the lack of any fundamental change in the two countries' relationship during this time, in April of 2009, President Obama repealed restrictions on travel to Cuba, along with restrictions on U.S. telecommunication companies operating there. It wasn't a complete removal of the embargo, it wasn't even close, but it was a big change from where it had been. Full diplomatic ties were restored, and in 2016, Obama visited Cuba, and later that year, some U.S. airlines began offering services between the two countries for the first time in over 50 years. There is still a trade embargo in place on Cuba as of early, mid-2017, but it's more of a hefty set of economic sanctions rather than a complete absolute embargo at this point. So after all that, what effect did the embargo have on Cuba? The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that the U.S. lost about $1.2 billion per year from sales and exports that we could have made to Cuba. But the Cuban government estimates that their own losses as a direct result of the embargo is just over $750 billion in total. So the loss for the U.S. and other countries who participated in the enforcing of that embargo is not nothing. But the return on investment, if you want to call it that, was substantial. It could be argued, of course, and it has been argued by some economists, that a significant portion of Cuba's loss was not the result of the embargo, but rather a result of the Cuban government's lack of modernization, flawed economic philosophy, and their latent corruption. The embargo through that lens provided the Castro regime with a convenient villain upon which to blame their self-inflicted hardships. Most experts seem to agree, though, that the embargo was massively effective in draining Cuba of economic power and global influence. It kept them pretty well sequestered and relatively weak compared to what they could have been otherwise. 
These are some of the larger, more historically prominent examples of sanctions, at least the modern examples of sanctions leveled by the U.S. and its allies. But the number of sanctions being slung worldwide at any given time is substantial, even if generally not terribly newsworthy. Sanctions are a bit like when the United Nations condemns something, where a politician expresses their concerns about something bad that happened. It's mostly a meaningless gesture most of the time, beyond giving these entities a non-committal way to express an opinion about something. And it could also lead to a whole lot more than that, to Iranian or Russian or Cuban level destructive sanctions. But things are set up in such a way that most of the time, things usually don't go that far. These types of legal tools and processes serve as indicators that there is something that our diplomats need to talk about. And then they usually do, and they work things out before things become too serious. This is why, despite all its flaws, our current codependent international system helps us avoid the majority of the conflicts that we might otherwise stumble into. And this is supposedly why life on Earth right now features less military conflict on average than ever before in human history, despite what the news often reports. So although it may be frustrating to hear about condemnations and sanctions ad nauseum, and with seemingly nothing ever happening as a result of these statements, no tangible consequences for those involved, and despite the perception that villainous acts often go uncriticized and unpunished, remember in those moments that it's because we have all these stair steps up toward actual conflict that we tend to avoid serious boots-on-the-ground action most of the time, and that bad guys sometimes get their comeuppance over the long haul, or in ways that are all but invisible to the fast-paced mechanisms of news distribution that are most prominent today. The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually a graphic novel, and it's called Persepolis. It's by Marjon Satrapi, and she is a woman who grew up in Iran during the Islamic Revolution. And this graphic novel tells the story of her childhood growing up during that period, before and during and after the Islamic Revolution, which was a period in Iran's history when they went from being a very liberal, progressive, if dictator-run country that played well with the international community post-World War II, to a country that was very hardcore fundamentalist Muslim. And the changes that a little girl had to go through during that period are utterly fascinating. It is absolutely hilarious and beautiful and fascinating. The graphic novel is just a glorious artifact to have and to read. There's also a movie version that I was so skeptical about because I love the book so much, but the movie, the illustrated movie, was just fabulous as well. And I'll link to a couple different places that you can find both of these items, the graphic novel and the movie, in the show notes. But however you take it in, I highly recommend checking out Persepolis by Marjon Satrapi. An excellent piece of work, provides a little bit of additional background to some of the things I talked about in this episode, but it's also one of the better pieces of illustrated storytelling that I've seen in a very long time. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. 